Split Tube Media and a Synesthesia Podcast present a special daily October podcast. Hell, 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 hell. to the king, king, king. going to be the ultimate metatextual king episode yes because there's almost nothing to say about the film itself but right. there's so much to say about the film's presence well yeah this film only exists as a reflection of the other version right it's yeah. not when you watch it that's the only way you can process it it's the only yeah there's no other reason for it to be made no it's just it's settling a grudge um the the film we are talking about on this night, the 26th of Rocktober. This isn't Rocktober, Chief. <laughs> this is the least Rocktober. Mm. Well, I don't know. We had ACDC in Maximum Overdrive. We did. And we had the Ramones in Pet Cemetery. Yeah, we did. Yeah, you know. And if we if we sort of bring in the Mouth of Madness into the Stephen King universe through Sutter Kane, you have John okay. Carpenter's rock band. Yeah, all right. Fine. You've earned it. <laughs> you've earned your right to call it Rocktober. You, you, you've earned it. I'm going to stick with October so no one gets confused about it being the eighth month of the year. October. <laughs> I like to keep um, things clean and straight. Uh, all right, we, we're, we're here on uh, number 26 of Hell to the King with the longest piece of anything we've watched yet. Yeah. This, this is a good choice for us to, at the end of this month, make an even longer process. Long. We, Jason, the the video that we that I believe we both watched this from is mm-hmm. uh, is a digital rip of a VHS c- copy off of this playing on television, including all the commercials, but specifically recorded by someone in New Hampshire recording off WMUR, the station I would have been watching this on had I watched it when it originally aired. That did excite me, and yeah. made me also want to find uh, find a copy from Vir- the Virginia market. Right? Uh. <laughs> there's, Jason, 28 minutes into the, into the video, there's an ad for Ippolito's Furniture Store, uh, and uh, it's a New Hampshire accent, but definitely the most honest New England accent we've heard in this full month. <laughs> Uh, that is true. That is true. So the the what we're talking about here, dear dear listener, constant listener, constant Wita, is the uh, the shining. We're the talking shining. about the shining today. The shining. Um. No. No. Not that shining. Wait. What? Not. But Jason, there's only one. The shining. Not the the classic horror film starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Uh, directed by Stella Kubrick. Uh, this is the... I don't know what that character that is. Uh, Keep <laughs> what, it up. What bit that Keep is. it up. This is the TV movie miniseries uh, of The Shining yeah. that uh, is... It's The Shining done right. It's. Can it's you the, imagine, Jason? fuck you, Stanley Kubrick edition of The Shining. Can you imagine it's 1994 and you're Rebecca de Mornay and you get a phone call from Stephen King and he's like, hey, I'm making The Shining, but good this time. Can you uh, 
b- bring to life the character that Shelley Duvall could not successfully? <laughs> How do you say yes to that? <laughs> um, well, it, it it's... <laughs> I do think she. I don't understand how they got anyone agree to to agree to be in this. Well, so money, money, I guess, but still well, money, but also so this is this at this point in time, it's sort of the difference of it. It's seventeen years later, right? Like uh-huh. Kubrick, Kubrick Shining is in nineteen eighty, mm-hmm. and and Stephen King's Shining adaptation is from nineteen ninety seven, and in between there, Stephen King had gone from a popular genre novelist mm-hmm. to one of the, the most famous of writers yeah. of all time. Sure. Uh, and he had already done, um, a few years back, the miniseries of The Stand. Okay. Uh, yeah. That he had written and produced and had Mick Garris, his dude, direct, who also directed this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was very successful and very popular and very critically acclaimed. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of the it was he was on top of the world and literally the way the story gets told is like it was Stephen you've conquered everything now like what do you want to do next and what he said was I want to take the shining back right you know I want to get it back from Kubrick. Um, but which still doesn't he actually- answer my question for how he got. <laughs> Stephen uh, Weber to agree to not be Jack Nicholson. Well, so somebody like Stephen Weber, I, I understand. Here's the thing about Stephen Weber: I like Stephen Weber a lot. Sure. I think he's a really good actor. Sure. Um, when you go and read what people write about this TV show, mm-hmm. it becomes quickly apparent that no, very few people actually understand what Stephen Weber is capable of as an actor. Sure, sure. Um, and I could absolutely see him being like, I really need to, to shake my wings image. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people, people refer to this. I don't think, I don't think people actually see the performance he's turning in, in this film, which is actually mm-hmm. quite good. It's um, pretty good. I, I, I don't think he is given, uh, I think all the performers, but per- particularly Weber and De Mornay are doing good work and they're not being particularly well served or protected yes. by the filmmakers. Yes. Uh, A.K.A. Stephen King and McGarris. Well, here's the thing, Jason, is I, I agree. I think that they all do. I don't think there's a, per- I think there is, oh, we'll come to it later. I think there is one performance in this movie that runs circles around the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, I felt like everyone was like turning in fine to good work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I do think that Mick Garris is a hack. I look, Jason, I looked him up. Because he's come up three times now, right? Mm-hmm. He's the he's the dude that King brings in to direct things, and I was like, it, his his career is the King adapter. Well, that's what. So I looked him up, and aside from a few King adaptations, he's he's made a bunch of behind the scenes featurettes, and he's directed episodes of television, and he's gotten two episodes of Masters of Horror, which blew my mind until I realized that he created the series Masters of Horror. And then I was like, oh, he's Chris Hardwick. He has a he's, Fangoria podcast. He's just a big fanboy nerd yeah. who has forcefully inserted himself into the industry despite not being good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, but he's also, he's inserted himself largely by, and I, I don't want to, I, he seems like a nice guy. Like, I don't, he's not. Yeah, everyone like, says he's a delight. I right, so, so like the, the Chris Hardwick 
comparison breaks down pretty hard. It breaks down immediately right there because um, he's clearly an so asshole. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't want hey, to... Hey, Nerdist, put us on your, put us on your <laughs> podcast network. I don't want to disparage McGarris as a person. Uh, he no, seems he like seems a, like, like a totally a lovely person. Seems like he's just not really a director. Is what cares about what he's doing, but yeah, yeah. I don't think he's he not good at is, it. No, no, no. I, it does make me wish... Not that I actually wish we'd done this because of the time involved, but it does make me wish that, that we had I financed had watched a, the stand another version of this miniseries directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Well, I do, I, I do wish that we'd watched the stand only because. Sure. Uh, so I, I was thinking that having watched Sleepwalkers, it would be enough of a comparison point. Sure. But like Sleepwalkers is insane. It's and Mick Garris is not making necessarily all any decisions, decisions at all. Yeah, but yeah. but he's he's got some kind of a pulse yes. going on, which he does not in this adaptation. Not but even I, a little. But bit. I think part of that is because the the project of the Shining TV adaptation is not to make a new Shining movie. It is to point by point in a very belabored and steady manner illustrate all of the things that Kubrick left out. And okay. I, I, I would be interested to see now, just as like a last point of comparison, what Garris and King do with a project where King doesn't have that kind of uh, a not, grudge going on, where yeah. all he's trying to do is make the best version of, of his own thing, as opposed sure. to like lay out an argument about somebody else's version, which is sure. what this movie is doing. Of course, yeah. I mean, it is also trying to be a movie, but I believe sort of. that that is its second goal. Jason, this this film... Are we calling it a film? Sure. I don't... This, sure. This series of images starts with... Uh, the first thing that happens is Pat Hengel, real hero, uh-huh. uh, shows Steven Weber how to blow up the building <laughs> with... With the with the thing in the basement. That's the first thing that happens. He's like, hey, everybody, here's the thing to remember. This is how you blow up the building. Yeah. And as soon as that happened, I was like, oh, this, that makes sense. Because this is going to be a movie where a man grapples with evil and then it's ultimately redeemed. Because that is what Stephen King writes. And that's yes. not what uh, Kubrick's The Shining is. Because Kubrick's... Correct. We talked about this a little bit uh, in the first one. But we, I think we sort of theorized that the reason that he hates it so much is because he took Stephen King's personal life story out of it and put Kubrick's own personal life story in it, right? It's about his <laughs> yeah, addiction instead of yeah. King's. And I was like, oh, that's it's that's exactly what this is going to be. In this one, he's going to grapple with evil. He's never going to be fully evil. And then he's going to win at the end by blowing up the building. And then, six hours later, that happened. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finally. I feel like I could have just watched the first three minutes and been... Okay. Oh, and when everything's uh, like thoroughly telegraphed and overexplained, yeah. and there's so many redundant scenes, and part oh of that God. is just television in 1997. Sure. That's sort of like the rules is you have to assume that you know people are tuning. Half of your audience is tuned in for the first time halfway through the yeah. third part of a three part series. Yeah. But the oh boy, um, Jason the. The thing that I always hear... So there's a bunch of stuff in this that's different than Kubrick's The Shining, which was the only version of The Shining I was familiar with previously. Yes. But the thing that I've always heard when people are mad at Kubrick's The Shining is that Jack Nicholson begins the book, or begins the movie, as a crazy person who is unhinged. Yes. But Steven Weber also begins this movie as a psychopath who is unhinged. 
Well, so I don't. What What are they complaining about? He does. I, two minutes after meeting him, he makes a, a casual joke about a man doing dental work with a shotgun when he learns about a guy committing suicide. He's a full psychopath. He also, just before the movie starts, has a Chicago style incident where he beats up a student at the school. He's not allowed back at the school he was teaching at because he beat up a student. He's well, so a I, maniac. I, I, he, he is. So here's the thing is that he's. Uh, he's uh yes but he also has all of these other aspects that come out as well um like all of all of these want you know these these very clear like human compulsions to get better and be a better husband and be a better father and i think one of the things i actually admire about weber's performance i don't mm-hmm. think that it's being translated or captured well enough mm-hmm. but he he is acting like six or seven different feelings about most different scenes. Um, And and I think the complaint about uh, Nicholson is that Nicholson is one note. Nicholson is just like starts as, as, crazy jack nicholson and only gets crazier whereas so it's the not character- that he starts there so much it's just that steven weber is conf- is conflicted the whole yes. time yeah for the full movie so yeah. neither of them has a real progression but one no, but, of them is oh, conflicted the full time and the other one is just is just a crazy guy the whole time yeah one struggles and okay. has an arc and the other just moves forward like a shark. i would debate I that steven weber's that character has rhyme. an arc um yeah, no, I, I think he does because he goes from he goes from self pity to self sacrifice. Like that's the arc, right? Like everything at the beginning is, oh poor me, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, and it's the self pity and the anger that the ghosts play on to turn him evil. Sure. And his arc is, um, you know, getting over himself. Is that? Okay. I mean, it one hundred percent is the Alcoholics Anonymous, like yeah, twelve step, like For sure. you know make amends give, and give up to a take responsibility and, and give up and, yeah. to a higher power. The higher power in this instance is his son. Right. But right. you know, that is also very Stephen King. Yeah, and, of course. You know, very, so, so that's, that's the arc there. Whereas Nicholson doesn't have an arc so much as just a, like a sharp incline. Sure. Um, I'll take that. I feel like he goes back and forth between those two things pretty constantly the whole movie. Um, wait, but wait, I'm, yeah, but one definitely does win at the end, and one yeah. doesn't win at the beginning. So I guess oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean it's strictly shaped as an arc. I just mean uh, like that's his struggle, and then he uh, he ends up in one. He starts in one place, and then ends up in another. Sure. Um, in in that way. Um, what one of the other major? So this is actually I've been doing a little bit more research into King's problems with sure. the original Shining, having partially because I was watching this movie for six hours, and it only yeah. requires you to look at it for. 20% of that tops. Yes. And so I was doing a lot of Googling um, when I wasn't being distracted by the amazing mind-melting commercials that were yeah. captured on this. Yes. Um, including one McDonald's commercial that had an old lady holding a hamburger up and said, this is how I keep you under my spell. <laughs> this is hot. This is fresh. This is why you are powerless under my spell. But, uh, so... One of the funniest and also sort of saddest things about the making of this TV miniseries mm-hmm. is that King needed Kubrick's permission to do it. Why? Because he still owned the rights. Whoa. Um, it was Kubrick and Warner Brothers jointly, I think, still owned the rights to the movie. 
That's crazy. Or to make to the book to make it the movie. So in order to be able to make his own version, King needed Kubrick to sign off. Yeah. And the condition was that King had to stop bad mouthing. <laughs> The 1980 film, which is why it's actually really hard, I think, to find details now sure. of what King didn't like about it. Um, the only thing that the that the agreement the agreement even specifically said that he was still allowed to criticize Jack Nicholson's performance, and so that's <laughs> okay. why that's the one thing that you always right, hear because right. that's the only thing after 1997 that King was like contractually allowed. to to talk That's about amazing. and i think he's lo- i think it's like loosening up on him a little bit now sure um and he's been talking about it a little bit more sure well yeah Kubrick's um, dead who cares yeah exactly uh <laughs> he, he outlived him who's gonna sue him <laughs> yeah um there's that, that, that amazing recording of king at a talk being like ah stanley kubrick i outlived him i even got hit by a car and i outlived him <laughs> um but so some of the other things that King really objected to, um, I mean, the, the way he wraps it up, he, the way he sums it up is that like Kubrick's adaptation is cold and mm-hmm. King's adaptation is warm. You sure. know, Kubrick's adaptation ends with, you know, Jack freezing mm-hmm. out in the cold and King's version ends with, with him literally the whole ball. thing yeah. in a fireball and him telling his son that he loves him. Yeah. So like, the, I mean, those are very stark differences. But sure. one of the most interesting things that King was really mad about and used to talk about more, I found out. Um, this goes to, to one, of the, one of the things that we've discussed on this podcast is the overall treatment of women and wives in King films mm-hmm. um, and how that may or may not differ from actual King works uh, because okay. the character of Wendy mm-hmm. in this and in yes. the King novel is a genuine force. Yes. And one of the things that King hated about the Kubrick Shining is that he took Shelley Duvall and just had her play yeah. a screaming, crying, sure. you know, weakling. And it, like King's major complaint was like it was so misogynistic. Which is it interesting made me because really unhappy. I mean, on some levels that is true, but during this film I really appreciated Kubrick's choice. I usually am I'm not on the side of making women pitiful nothings. Um, right. But in this, and maybe, I don't know, maybe it just requires a, a ramping up of Jack Nicholson. And maybe Jack Nicholson is enough in that, that if she had been the way that Rebecca de Mornay per- portrays her, he still could have completely overpowered her. Mm-hmm. But in this movie... They're just scrapping. I'm never... You're never like, oh, he is gonna murder her. Yeah. You know? You're just like, oh, this man is coming after this woman with a club, and she's probably gonna kneecap him. Yeah. Yeah. It, she, she's almost too strong. But it, it also changes it. It changes the focus, right? Because key, the whole point of Kubrick's... I mean, Kubrick just distills The Shining down to yeah. the... the uh, sort of environmental and tonal horror elements, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he just takes it to murder, yes. right? Um, which, when you actually then like go into what King's Shining is about, it isn't about that. You even have at the end, like the ghosts stopping Stephen Weber, being like, "Look, yeah. you can kill her later. I know that's what you yeah. want to do, but what we need you to do is get yeah. us your son, because right. the whole idea in this is that the ghosts are more powerful because they're feeding off the power that's in the boy, right? And like, if they can somehow just like 
you know, kidnap and bully and, and terrorize the boy into doing their bidding, they're going to become so much more powerful in the world. Right. And it's like this whole other fantasy conceit that Kubrick has no interest in whatsoever. Right. And it's why and, The Shining doesn't matter in Kubrick's movie. Yeah. Because in this movie, the movie starts with the kid being a competent and acknowledged psychic. Yeah. Uh, and then he's just, yeah, and then it's what they eat, right? It's, it is what makes the building allow itself to be evil. Yeah, and like some of that is just plot differences, but it really does actually get to the core of what kind of a story it is. Because sure. Kubrick's story is just, it, it's the, the unlocking of the human potential yeah. for cruelty and, and destruction. That, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, it's, the whole movie is just, it's taking that and playing it out to an extreme. And that one of the reasons I, the movie's so good is because it does just cut away everything that isn't that. It just yes. hones right in, and it puts you in that space, and it keeps you in that space, and you don't get to escape until the end. Yeah. Um, whereas King's Shining is trying to be a much more expansive, epic yeah. story. Story it's with all, all kinds of different It's trying things, to do a bunch of things. Which I think... In the hands of somebody who wasn't McGarris, yeah, and somebody who wasn't a very begrudging Stephen King, yeah, could become a really good movie. I There's would a good be movie curious to see a different person's version of this film. Yeah, based on based on the script, rewrites aloud because there's some stuff in there where it's like he holds up three fingers and yells, "Read between the lines," you know, and you're like, yeah. "Oh my god, please stop." trying yeah. to not be clever it feels intentional yeah um you know there's to take another pass and then do it but do it do this version of it i would watch yeah. this version of it and i think in the modern era we love remakes and we love making three movies out of one movie uh do that or two yeah who cares well, I two mean, they, three hour long movies and they're making dr sleep now so it's inevitable sure. that somebody's going to come along and be like well now that we've made a new dr sleep oh my god how good would it be if they shining. were like the shining a prequel to dr sleep yeah right It'd be, yeah. i mean because that well and that's also what i i i feel like what I dr sleep needs is I don't, the actual precedent <laughs> for itself <laughs> i don't know this for sure but it does feel like at the end of of the tv miniseries the shining mm-hmm. the king already must maybe had some inkling that he was gonna write a sequel sure because he adds on like that scene with the graduation where yeah which ghost dad shows up yeah, yeah yeah and that's not in the book oh my god can we talk about tony for a minute yes please let's talk about tony um so i yeah i th- there's this movie's so long and there's probably <laughs> too many like, things i mean there's too many things but also nothing like yes. nothing happens that much there there's some good actors who are are not terribly well used except they're turning in really okay, good performances so jason elliot gould has oh one God. scene in this movie as the man who hires him he has one scene they walk around the yard and talk about things and elliot gould is just dribbling acid down his chin <laughs> the whole scene and he he's so incredible and i wanted him to come back so bad but there's no reason for him to no it's there's just at one point one, oh my oh, in this one steven weber is writing a play instead of a book but also he gives up on it immediately that's a weird difference um but when he's <laughs> when he's trying to prove to elliot gould that he's an acceptable d- 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 care- caretaker he's like uh plus i have my play i'm trying to write a play and elliot gould says ah <laughs> It's just so eviscerating. The Elliot Gould's performance in that is so. It, I was trying to put myself in the place of 
being, say, like a young person sure. watching this on television in 1997, mm-hmm. maybe not knowing who Elliot Gould is or understanding like what he's done. Yeah. And so not necessarily, I can imagine a lot of people not processing what he's doing as a choice, but just being like, who is this weird, stiff oh, actor? Just think who, he's a really strange guy. Yeah, it's just like, oh, it's just like who, who is this like really strange wooden guy with flat delivery who they got and not understanding that like what he's doing with that performance is amazing it's incredible sorry you were gonna talk about someone else oh i don't even remember um oh we were gonna talk about tony 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 Tony. so in in so having only the kubrick's film as a reference point Uh, where um, he's a finger boy just a finger he's just a finger that the boy talks to which is great danny's not so great now yeah um there's just so many choices that kubrick made about things of like sure we could technically show this but it will look terrible i'm just gonna turn it into a human performance in the Kubrick version, he's like, oh, he's a little boy who lives in my mouth. Also, he moves to my finger to talk to me, which is so many more details than are necessary that it seems like it must be from the book. But not. It's not from the book. Tony's just a guy that floats and talks to him. Well, I don't... I, that that might be a new interpretation of Tony, even from King. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, because, again, like, the the... The way that King writes books, uh, you know, we've covered this before, and and particularly in The Shining, everything is first person. Mm -hmm. Everything is, like, from the perspective of somebody. So Mm -hmm. I I could see him in in the writing of it, there being no need or even opportunity to describe what Tony is. It's just, you know, Danny's interior monologue, and then sometimes he's talking to Tony. But in this version king makes the decision to make tony a floating blonde teenager yeah on a green real doofus (laughs) it's just he's he's like a like an extra from friends just floating in the sky yeah yeah in his like a non-branded casual wear just like hey hey oh hey bud which jason i uh, at, at one point uh, Rebecca De Mornay goes to a uh, she takes him to a psychologist or something and they talk to him and he's asking her some questions I'm sure they say something salient for the plot later or whatever sure. but dur- during the conversation the doctor's like oh and let me guess was Tony a real person before you left the town you left and she says yes so did Stephen Weber murder that guy <laughs> because at the end Stephen Weber as a ghost can appear to Danny Torrance so is he just a dead guy that that used to well, live in the town they lived in or can Danny just see people he used to know well but then also compounding that is that at the end Danny yeah. is Tony oh was it played by the same actor yeah that's oh, Tony I did Tony not is Danny graduating that. and they say Daniel Anthony Torrance as he walks across the stage. So it's his future self being okay. projected backwards, which makes her comment even more baffling. Yes. Unless Tony is whoever he was named after is a middle name? I don't know. Maybe. That is super bonkers. It's very confusing. And I, I was so it. checked out by the time he was graduating that I... <laughs> I may not have even looked at him on the stage yeah, to well, see that it was the same actor. It was the same actor. Oh, that's um, amazing. I, that was when I was checked back in. Like, I just kind of checked sure. back in in the last 20 minutes to watch yeah. the... Because almost everything that takes place in the Kubrick film takes place in the last half hour of this. Sure. 
Yes. But bafflingly, not that much more takes place before it. No. It's all just very... It's it's just repetition and exposition. Yeah. There's a distressing wasp scene where a little boy yeah. is being stung by wasps and screaming, and that really didn't sit well with me, but... Everything is so slow and so belabored and so just like... Everything has to be set up like seven times, yeah. and then it's just it, it's 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 this well, perfect a- storm of King's yeah. grudge and the asinine requirements of narrative television in the yes. 1990s, just combining to form something borderline unwatchable. Yeah, there are. I think because again, because Rebecca De Mornay's Shelley Duvall, I don't remember the name of the character, uh, Wendy. Wendy is a character with a backbone and with uh, her own ideas. Mm-hmm. There were two to three times in this movie where Steven Weber is being a real shitbag. And she's like, we should leave. And he's like, no, I have a job. And I don't understand why she isn't like, okay, I'm taking our son we're going to town. We'll see you in a couple of months. Um, the only reason I can imagine her not doing that is because she is a spineless wimp, but she's not in this movie. So, and that was, they they sort of had the scene, but I was expecting them um, to do it a little bit stronger. In the book, she mm-hmm. does want to go, and Danny convinces her to stay, because mm. he thinks... In, in the way that Danny has, has perceived things so far, he thinks that what they can do is they can protect his father and they can all work together. And Danny doesn't yet understand that it's his presence that are actually making the ghosts stronger sure. and able to take over his father. So, like, and, and Danny is such a, a, a weird, like, deep, intelligent character that he's able to convince his mother sure. that they shouldn't go. Um, and they sort of have that scene in the in the TV movie, but it doesn't mm-hmm. really land. I think partially because uh, no, I hate to like shit on a little kid, but like Court sure. like Mead isn't that great. He is the worst. <laughs> and that, and I think that was the second round, Jason. There was one round earlier that where where she just kind of decides to stay, and yeah. then there's that round, and then the third round is is just before Jack smashes up the snowmobile. But she, mm-hmm. has a, she has a good 30-minute window where she's like, I'm going to do this. And he's like, no! She's like, uh, okay. And I'm like, no, you need to stand up for yourself right now. And then immediately he goes and beats up the snowmobile. Yeah. Uh, and, and claims that he didn't. Uh, well, and, and because in it- this version, he is half the time under the control of monsters and half the time just a sad guy. Yeah, it's like this, it's it's this lurching thing. And that, again, is a much more direct metaphor for Very alcoholism, stupid. where you're like, well, oh, no, I blacked so- out and did this thing, but yeah. later I'm going to tell myself I couldn't have done that because I'm a good person. And in this, he explicitly, they even commented early on, the things that are happening to him are the things that happen to him when he is drinking, but he is not drinking. It's just so in your face a metaphor for Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the other thing, you know, one of the other things, like, you can just go down the list of the things that King hated about the Kubrick thing. He hated that Kubrick downplayed the alcoholism, Mm -hmm. um, and that he hated that Kubrick downplayed the supernatural elements. Mm -hmm. Um, Weirdly, uh, it was Kubrick who added in the Indian burial ground thing. Yeah, that's not in this. That's not, that's not a sorry, King invention. Stephen King for throwing yeah. that one at you. The rest, yeah. I'm not sorry the, about. You, I mean, it's, there's still one in Pet Cemetery. 
not as bad. Like, I think you even made the point in Pet Cemetery that, like, he at least knows which tribe was there and makes it a specific yeah. thing, as opposed sure. to just the generic, like, Indians. I don't know. Yeah. Who you cares? Know, that Kubrick yeah. did. And, like, really, if if, if I was going to go through with a, with a, you know, a comb for that kind of shit, mm-hmm. like, you know, the Kubrick film's egregious. <laughs> you know, he, oh, he, sure. he puts in the Indian burial ground. He completely shrinks the Dick Halloran role to just saying hi to Danny and then getting yeah. stabbed in the back well, as opposed to having it. Not, not that the role is That's great. basically all it is in this, Jason. I would say the amount that there is more Dick Halloran in this is proportionally smaller than the amount that there is more movie in this. <laughs> I don't know. He gets us he gets us good good scenes in Florida. <laughs> Like in in the Kubrick version, he literally just talks to Danny, and then he's just yeah. sitting in a room. Yeah, and then he gets stabbed. That's what happens in this, Jason. Nice. A, we have we have five scenes, and it's kind of funny. We have five scenes of him. He's in like a restaurant, and then Danny screams in his brain, and then we have like five scenes of him traveling to get there. But they're not. It's not a character moment. It's just him being like, "Oh my god, stop screaming in my in my head." Uh, and then he gets there. What What is funny is that. In this version, he he does the same thing of getting all the way out there and then gets immediately smashed with a croquet mallet in this one. Uh, but then he he wakes up at the end so that he can be in the last scene, right? That's the one moment he gets in this. But in Kubrick's, he gets smacked by an axe and is just dead, which is, if you're going to go through the effort of making a man travel from Florida to a building that's locked in the middle of a snowstorm in Colorado and just immediately be dispatched, it's funnier that he's dead. That's true. That's true. It's a, he, Kubrick makes it into a better bit. Um, but yeah, he's alive at the end of this one, but he doesn't get more. That's the only more screen time he gets. No, he doesn't get more screen time, but he does get. Well, no, that's not true because he spends a lot longer, like, teaching, trying to talk to Danny about what his gift is and explaining things about the hotel. Like, he, it, it's. and I'm not it, sold on your theory. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if you went back through it, there there is... I'm not saying it's a great character, but it's much more of a character um, than what Scatman gets in The Shining. Um, Maybe. And then and then there there's the the Wendy development, which is like Kubrick does just I mean as much as I love Shelley Duvall and I I think maybe Shelley Duvall's uh, gravitas and and command of her art elevates mm-hmm. her Wendy beyond what sure. it's written to be. Sure. Um, there's no doubt that what Kubrick wanted was just a completely broken woman, and that's really what well, yeah. he literally got from Shelley Duvall by like she was notoriously wrecked yeah. from shooting that movie. Yeah. So there there's all of this stuff where it's like, yeah, you know, I could see how that could stick in my craw, especially if the movie becomes so famous that then you get blamed for all of that stuff. Sure. Uh but it's still a way better movie. Yeah. Um the the um there's a scene in the middle ish, sometime in the middle of this six hours, who cares, somewhere in there, where Jack is in the main office and the CB radio, which is off, crackles to life, and his father starts berating him through the radio. His and it father is Miguel Ferrer. Yes, uncredited, but that who, voice is unmistakable. Yeah, you know immediately it's him, but also he just acts so much even just his voice, Jason, yeah. I was like, oh, this man is acting, and it makes me sad about how much everyone else isn't acting in this movie. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's probably because Miguel Ferrer he didn't, had no idea. He, couldn't he probably didn't happening. even meet Mick Garris. He was probably no. like a B-unit person just went and recorded some audio, and he's like, yeah, all right, exactly. I'll just make some decisions. Yeah, they just sent him a script and a microphone, and he ripped it out, and he is so vicious. Oh, it's so it's good. really beautiful. So good. Um, for the first two hours, maybe four <laughs> hours of this movie, uh, it's just people taking care of a hotel, uh, yeah. and, and occasionally ghost things happen, Jason, but they aren't I'm putting this on Mick Garris. They aren't smart enough to make them spooky ghost things. It's or or things that are like prescient or poignant in any way at all. It's just like the camera will move past some people who are doing a thing and then a swing will swing twice. And you're like, "Okay. I, I mean, guess maybe there's a ghost." Or like the, a light will turn off and you're like, "Convenient." The first 7 hours of this movie is essentially just doors closing themselves. That's their yeah. one big spooky move. Yeah, that's it. Two hours into this movie, it happened I wrote so this many down. times as a commercial break point. It's yeah. like the door closed again. Two hours in, I wrote myself the note: "Shouldn't something have happened by now?" I, I for some reason just refused to write notes on this. I just that's smart because <laughs> you knew you were trapped for six hours. I the, just couldn't do it. This movie, Jason, will not shut up about topiaries. Every sixth shot was a topiary. They they pull up to the place and they talk about them for much longer than they need to. Uh, and then the, it just they keep shooting them. They're like, and hey, remember these? Remember these again, topiaries? Hey, that, topiaries. That was a big argument between King and Kubrick. Was King was one the of the topiaries from the book? And, and Kubrick said, Kubrick no, was like, no, dumb. that is stupid. Yeah. It yes, is. and so he turned it into a hedge maze. So again, it, the, this movie, every choice, every choice is filtered through King needing to really underline his disagreement with Kubrick, but, and it ruins any judgment he may have otherwise yeah. had about how to adapt this. Has anyone talked to him about this since, to see if... Because it feels like all of his decisions really just underline how Kubrick made good decisions. I guess I don't know, man. I like. It seems like it seems objectively like this movie is clumsy and fumbling and and not scary or interesting. Yes. And so it seems like there would be no way for him to look at this as a failed experiment and proof that Kubrick understands how cinema works, and he and Mick Garris maybe do not. Well, yeah, although he except- does sometimes, King definitely does sometimes but not with things he cares about he only likes to make movies out of things where people scream and then fall and then punch something yeah i don't i mean so i i think that it i don't think that this was considered a failure i mean i don't okay but it is right to us artistically but i I think it like was generally pretty well reviewed and got awards and lots of people watched it and so i i think that king probably was just feels like all right i got to do my version so people yeah. can see that and they can choose and Someone i mean the other talk thing to, to him in 2019 about it the other thing to remember is a lot of people still don't like the kubrick version either like it's too much for a lot of people okay and but it's, does it's, stephen king want to make things for tepid people no 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 i'm i'm, I'm I, I feel like I'm coming across like I'm arguing for King's version. I just feel like I, it it can't. It's probably not that clear in his mind or a lot of other people's minds. Like to me, obviously, the Kubrick is a so much better as a movie. Yeah. Um. But if what I cared about were the thematics of the story, mm-hmm. 
like if I cared about The Shining as a book, if I cared mm-hmm. about the themes of the story, I would hate Kubrick's film. I'm sure. Just sure. like I'm sure there are movies that are technically good, but that do take on subject matter or source materials that I do care about, mm-hmm. and I just am like, yeah, that's great. I don't care. That's not. It's they're doing. I'm 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 stepping away from it because I care too much. Okay. I can't think of any examples right now, but I'm sure that they exist. I wondered partway through this why why King likes Mick Garris. Sorry, I'm just going to keep shitting on Mick Garris. Because no, you, I mean, here's the thing. is that you? It's baffling. Because when Stephen King directs, it's just people smashing their faces into walls until their noses are bloody. And everything Mick Garris directs is like room temperature pea soup it's they're like they are opposite characters as film directors yeah it, it's shocking to me that sleepwalkers is as bonkers as it is yeah given that but and, and now again this is television i guess it might be worth seeing something else that garris made for film yeah but um which there isn't a lot direct it's not just that he's boring it's like there's no directing happening oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, 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 I don't disagree. There's a shot, Jason, it's just before the topiaries come to life for the first time, where clearly Mick Garris was like, I don't know, you're doing work out here, I don't know, let's roll. Because Steven Weber wanders aimlessly with a broom in his hand, then walks up to a playhouse, sweeps snow off one corner of it, says, work, 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 and then sits <laughs> down. <laughs> There was no one directing the movie. <laughs> it was just good actors unsure of what to do. Yeah. There's also a scene where, just before the second time, the topiaries attack, uh, Danny Torrance is out making a s- snow pile, and he sings, I like snow! I like snow! It's such a beautiful thing! I loved that! That was yeah. amazing! Yeah. Yeah, everything I don't know. I don't I don't want to talk about this anymore. Hell to the King is a special presentation of the Synesthesia Podcast. Produced by Iguana Donald Studios and distributed by Split Tooth Media. Music by Loyalty Freak. Hello, Tooth.